Is the pre-tribulation rapture a modern invention? Is it a doctrine that first showed up around 1830 being first taught by J.N. Darby? Or is the pre-tribulation rapture a biblical doctrine that can be traced to the earliest church fathers? Recently, Irenaeus has become ground zero for this debate. Stay tuned for the results of my thorough investigation into Irenaeus' eschatology. Hi there, I'm Lee Brainerd. Welcome to Soothkeep and another edition of Prophecy in the Crucible. My mission is truth, truth at any cost, truth above every other consideration, truth without varnish or tarnish, truth without addition or subtraction. And the truth that we're going to investigate today regards the pre-tribulation rapture. Was it actually taught in the early church? Now, the pre-trib camp says, yes, the pre-tribulation rapture was taught in the early church. But the post-trib camp vehemently and hotly disputes this point. They claim that the pre-trib rapture is a modern fiction. They claim that there's no trace of a pre-tribulation rapture in the early fathers. And they claim that nobody taught a pre-tribulation rapture until J.N. Darby. But is this really the case? Or is this a situation where prejudice sees what prejudice wants to see? The, the question is actually relatively easy to answer. All we have to do is to demonstrate that one early church father taught a pre-tribulation rapture. If we produce just one, just one, uh, pre-tribulation rapture testimony from one early church father, then we debunk the claim that nobody taught a pre-tribulation rapture prior to J.N. Darby. And we debunk the claim that none of the early church fathers taught a pre-tribulation rapture. And then we can relegate the theory that the pre-trib rapture was originated with J.N. Darby. We can take that theory and throw it in the scrap heap along with all the fairy tales and exploded theories. Now, as mentioned earlier, Irenaeus is ground zero for the rapture debate as far as the question of the early church fathers is concerned. And there's two reasons for this. One, Irenaeus was the earliest church father to write extensively on prophecy or eschatology. And two, his proximity to the apostles is extremely provocative. He received his prophetic instruction from aged men like Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. These aged men were personally acquainted with the disciples and were discipled by the disciple or by the apostles. And Irenaeus claims, in fact, that he got his rapture teaching from the aged men who had got it from the mouths of the apostles themselves. So, the focus of our examination of Irenaeus is going to be in his work against heresies. This is his only extant work except for a few scattered fragments. The first four books of this work are directed against the Gnostics, but the last book has a tremendous summary of his prophetic views, and indeed the prophetic views of the early church. And this is a gold mine for diligent investigators. Now, the controversy over Irenaeus' rapture status 
arose over a passage in Irenaeus that I included in my presentation at the Pre-Trib Study Group Conference in Dallas in December of 2021. And by the way, before I present this passage, I just want to point out that the translations in this video are my own. The first passage I'm going to give is based on my translation of the Greek with reference to the um, Latin translation. The rest of the passages are from the Latin, and my Latin translations differ slightly from the standard English translation. I have included a few emendations that I believe add clarity to the points that Irenaeus was trying to make. At any rate, the passage that I produced at the Pre-Trib Study Group Conference was uh, against heresies 5.29.1. In the end, when the church is suddenly caught up from this, it is said, there shall be tribulation. Such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. For this is the last contest of the righteous, in which when they overcome, they are crowned with incorruption. Now, this passage has sent the post-trib camp into convulsions. It challenges their dogma that no early church father was pre-trib. Now, notice the grammatical structure in this passage. When the church is suddenly caught up, is a circumstantial clause that indicates the circumstances when the action of the main verb takes place. And the future verb here is critical. It places the tribulation after the rapture. When the rapture is a historical fact, then the tribulation shall happen. The rapture is a circumstance which either triggers or signals the following tribulation. And by the way, the word this here, when they're raptured up from this, the this refers back to the normal course of unbelief in the world. We call that relative normality, which is mentioned in the immediately preceding context. Now, an appeal to the Latin translation gains nothing for the post-trib advocates. The Latin says, cum ecclesia asimetur a tribulatio. In other words, when the church shall be cut up, there shall be tribulation. Again, we have a circumstantial clause, when the church shall be caught up. And when the rapture is a historical fact, then the action stated in the main verb shall take place, then there shall be tribulation. The future verb here is there shall be tribulation. This indicates, and you can't escape it, that the tribulation follows the rapture. And furthermore, an appeal to the original Greek also gains nothing. There we read, Of the church being caught up, there shall be tribulation. Now, the circumstantial clause here, which is a circumstantial participial clause, says, in a stilted literal translation, of the church being caught up. This means when the church is caught up. And again, we have a future verb which locates the tribulation after the rapture. And this informs us, folks, that the rapture precedes the tribulation. Now, there are two classes of passages which the post-trib camp levels against the pre-trib understanding of Irenaeus. The first is a handful of passages which merely mention saints in the tribulation. 
The second is a single passage which mentions the church in the tribulation. And we are going to tackle these in order. Let's start with the passages that mention the saints in the tribulation. Now, the post-tribs love to point to these passages, but the problem is that they don't do them any good. They gain absolutely nothing from this. These passages are beside the point. And they're so beside the point, I'm not even going to present any of them to you because there's no reason for it. Passages in Irenaeus or passages in any early church father that mention saints in the tribulation in and of themselves prove absolutely nothing. Both the post-trib camp and the pre-trib camp believe that there will be saints in the tribulation. In fact, the pre-trib camp is emphatic that there are going to be saints in the tribulation. So the fact of saints in a, in a tribulation passage is inconclusive. It's, it can't tell you whether this is a post-trib rapture or a pre-trib rapture situation that we're looking at. The mere fact of saints alone, well, let me put it this way, the mere fact of saints in a passage, a tribulation passage, that by itself, uh, that by alone, doesn't gain anything. It's not proof for uh, either any rapture position. If you point to generic saints in the tribulation passages as proof of a pre-trib, uh, as proof of a post-trib rapture, pardon me, you are begging the question. What needs to be demonstrated is whether these saints are clearly Christian in their practice or whether they are clearly Jewish uh, in their practice, Jews practicing the temple service. Now, let's look at the one passage that appears to articulate a post-trib rapture position. That's found in Against Heresies 5.26.1. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but shall receive power as if kings one hour with the beast. I have a little ellipsis here. And they shall lay Babylon waste and burn her with fire, and shall give their kingdom to the beast, and put the church to flight. After that they shall be destroyed by the coming of our Lord. Now at first glance, I admit, this looks like a slam dunk for a post-trib rapture. It, in fact, it's so clear that it gives many pre-trib uh, believers pause. They don't know what to do with it. Uh, so they just kind of step back from Irenaeus and, and move on to other fathers. But all the glitters, folks, is not gold. An examination of Irenaeus's ecclesiology and his eschatology puts this passage in very different light. This is a classic example that we need to determine the author's theological framework and the author's intended sense for critical terms. If we don't do this, we do ourselves and the church a great disservice. The convenient maneuver in a situation like this is to cite a proof text while ignoring the author's theological framework and ignoring the author's intended meaning for critical terminology. The inconvenient truth here is that Irenaeus explains exactly what he means by church and it is a bad look for post-tribulationism. Now let's examine a passage where Irenaeus distinguishes the saints of the present age from the saints of the tribulation. We find this in, in Against Heresies 
Now I have shown a short time ago that the church is the seed of Abraham. And for this reason, that we may know that he who in the New Testament raises up from the stones children unto Abraham is he who will gather, according to the Old Testament, those that shall be saved from all nations. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, who led the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north and from every region whither they have been driven. He will recover them to their own land that he gave to their fathers. Now this passage gives us two distinct features of Irenaeus's ecclesiology. First of all, he has two distinct redemption programs under the new covenant. He has a New Testament Gentile program where the Lord is currently raising up Gentile stones, the spiritual seed of Abraham, to make a people for himself. And notice it's in the present tense, he raises up. The second program that he has is the tribulation program where the Lord will gather saved, individual, his, uh, saved individuals from Israel, his physical seed, according to the Old Testament promises, from all the nations where they were scattered. And notice here, folks, there's a future tense. He will gather. He's not currently doing this in the church age. He's going to do it later on when the church age is done and he's in the tribulation age. Did you catch the distinction here, folks, between the present tense raises up, which is going on right now, with the Gentile stones of this age, and the future tense will gather with the children of Israel in the return to the Old Testament Jewish program. This presentation has the completion of the Old Testament Jewish program following the completion of the New Testament Gentile program. This is the exact distinction that dispensationalism makes, though there is a minor difference in terminology. And, and by the way, this distinct Jewish program and focus is the clear intent and purpose and teaching of the passage in Jeremiah 23 that Irenaeus cited. And when God promised to gather scattered Israel, he was not promising to gather them at the end of the age and add them to the church. He was promising to gather them back to their own land under their own new covenant program and give them the blessings promised to them in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, the second distinctive point of Irenaeus's ecclesiology is that he equates church with the entire seed of Abraham. He includes the saved New Testament Gentile saints of this age, which is the spiritual seed, and he includes the saved Jews from around the world that are saved during the tribulation, that's the physical seed of Abraham, which are gathered at the second coming. And this, folks, is explosive truth. Now, Irenaeus's use of the word church differs from the modern use. Under the heading church, Irenaeus has two New Covenant programs, the New Testament Gentile program and the Old Testament Israel program, which is going to be continued in the future. The latter is God's 
promised return to national Israel to finish what he started, a promise made in numerous passages, including Daniel 9:24 through 27. Now, this two-program reproach, I mean, pardon me, this two-program approach, regardless of the theological terminology employed, is diametrically opposed to post-tribulationism. But this two-program approach, despite a secondary difference in terminology, agrees precisely with dispensationalism. Now, let's look at the difference between dispensationalism and Irenaeus in the use of the word church. Dispensationalism uses the word church only for the saints of the present age, and they employ the term tribulation saints for those that are saved after the rapture. In other words, those that are going to be saved during the tribulation and the 70th week. Uh, dispensationalism does not have a technical term for the whole family of the redeemed. They simply use generic terms like saints or believers. And sometimes people might say something like the whole household of God. Irenaeus uses the term church for all the seed of Abraham that's saved under the new covenant, not only the Gentile stones of the current age, but the redeemed Jewish believers in the tribulation that are gathered at the end of the tribulation from every nation on earth and brought to Israel. So he has both the spiritual seed of this age and the physical seed in the age to come under the heading of church. And there's a fundamental lesson here for us, folks, because differences in substance are ten times more important than differences in terminology. Men can have virtually identical theology that employs significantly different terminology. And they can have significantly different theology that employs virtually identical terminology. We, we need to know what people mean with their terminology. Uh, we have a fundamental obligation to observe what men mean with their terminology before we agree with them or fault them. Now, another proof that Irenaeus is truly pre-trib is that he portrays the saints in the tribulation as practicing Jews, not practicing Christians. Against Heresies 5.25.4, we read, A king of a most fierce countenance shall arise, then I introduce a little ellipses here during which the saints shall be put to flight, they who offer a pure sacrifice unto God. And in the midst of the week, he says, the sacrifice and the libation shall be taken away, and the abomination of desolation shall be brought into the temple, even unto the, unto the consummation of the time shall the desolation be complete. Now three years and six months constitute the half week. Notice here, the trib saints, the tribulation saints, are those who offer acceptable sacrifice to God. And the sacrifices here are associated with the temple service. And the temple service here is regarded as a pure or a true sacrifice. This is the exact same dispensational spirit that we see in the Bible. We see in Revelation 11, 1 and 2 that God accepts both the temple and those that worship in it. We see in Matthew 24 where God owns his temple and he uh, upholds his Sabbath. The law, the Mosaic covenant, is in force. Now, 
The fact is, every passage in the Bible that presents trib saints with identifying characteristics presents practicing Jews whose service is honored of God. Moreover, it is contextually impossible to interpret the sacrifices in this passage in Irenaeus as spiritual sacrifices made by Christians in the church age. That would be an allegorical uh, method that that's, should be touched by nobody. Th these sacrifices here are literal sac. If we're going to trust the context, these sacrifices are literal sacrifices in a literal temple that are literally stopped by the literal Antichrist when he commits the literal abomination of desolation. And, and furthermore, I Irenaeus portraying the temple service during the tribulation that is honored by God forbids the idea that he believed that Christians would be in the tribulation. Folks, Irenaeus wasn't confused. He taught, as we do, that in the church age, Christ is the end of the law. And what true evangelical would be comfortable right now with born-again Christians offering sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem if that temple was standing right now? The fact is, it is theologically and biblically impossible to have a God-honored temple sacrifice during the church age. God rent the veil at the time of the cross and he set the temple aside to start the church. And this can't be undone so long as the church is here on earth. We are the temple right now. And as long as the church is here, as long as the temple is here, we are in the, the era of the rent veil in the physical temple which has been set aside as the temple. Now, if the 70th week is a continuation of the church age, then the church would still be the temple of God and the sacrifices would still be the church's spiritual sacrifices. Uh, the physical temple in Jerusalem could not be the temple of God, could not be owned by God as this temple, and the sacrifices offered in, in the temple and in the temple yard could not be acceptable to God. Now, if the temple is, on the other hand, the temple of God during the 70th week, and the sacrifices are honored of God, then the 70th week is Jewish, it's not Christian, and the rapture has already happened. Now, I want to add one more thought here, and that is that there is a necessity for this return to Israel and the temple. If, if you don't have God's return to Israel as the people of God and God's return to the temple as the temple of God, then you can't have a literal fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. Let me illustrate this. If the Jews built a physical temple in Jerusalem right now in the church age, and an Antichrist figure sacrificed a pig in it and set up an image of himself and required men to worship that image, this would be sacrilegious, but it would not be the abomination of desolation. It can only be the abomination of desolation because God owns the temple, is his temple, it's his house, and his name is there. Otherwise, it's just sacrilegious. Now, Irenaeus also has other pre-tribulation rapture passages than the original one that I showed, um, and these corroborate the first one. Let's look at uh, Against Heresies 5.5.1. For Enoch, when he pleased God, was translated. 
thus pointing out by anticipation the translation of the just. Wherefore also the elders who were disciples of the apostles tell us that those who are translated are translated to that place in which Paul the apostle, when he was caught up, heard words which are unspeakable, and that there shall they who have been translated remain until the consummation, which is the end, as a prelude to incorruptibility. Now notice, Enoch's translation prior to judgment prefigures the church's translation prior to judgment. Notice also that the translation takes the saints up, not sideways, takes them up to heaven, to the third heaven, where Paul was taken. Notice that the saints shall remain in heaven from the time of the translation, from the time of the rapture, until the consummation, that is the end, that is the second coming. And this translation of the church is a prelude to incorruptibility. Uh, th this is talking about the fact that at the second coming, nature as a whole in the Old Testament saints receive their resurrection glorification. So, folks, this translation happens prior to judgment. It takes the saints to the third heaven. The saints are going to remain in heaven until the time of judgment, until the second coming. And this translation is an early foretaste of the incorruptibility that the, that the globe and the rest of the saints get at the second coming. How in the world is this not a pre-tribulation rapture? And again, I want to point out that Irenaeus received this rapture teaching from the aged men like Polycarp, who heard it directly from the apostles. Another rapture passage is against heresies 5.32.1. But it is necessary to say on these things that it behooves the righteous to be the first in this condition, which is being renewed, rising up to the appearance, that is the visible observation of God, to receive the promise of inheritance which God promised to the fathers, afterward to be a judge. Now notice, the church is the first to receive the renewal. This is the same teaching as in the prior passage, the first to enjoy incorruptibility. Irenaeus would not say first if he held to a single phase resurrection at the second coming where all the saints of all the ages received their resurrection at the same time. It would be ridiculous under such a, a view to say the first. Notice further that the church is rising to the visible presence of God where she receives her renewal and her inheritance. And after her time of reward in heaven, she returns to earth to fulfill the office of judge. The last rapture passage is against heresies 5.31.2. As our master therefore did not at once depart, taking flight, but awaited at the time of his resurrection prescribed by the Father, which had also been shown forth through Jonah, and rising again after three days was taken up, so ought we also to wait the time of our resurrection prescribed by God and foretold by the prophets, and so, rising, be taken up. So notice, the Lord Jesus' flight, or his taking up, after his resurrection, took him to the presence of the Father in heaven. We know this. That's where he went. And in the same way, when the church flies, or when the church is taken up, she's going to go to the same place to be with the Father and with the Son. And this flight to heaven is the same flight, it's the same concept that we see in John 14, 1-3, where the next time the Lord Jesus physically appears to his church, he's going to take them to be with himself in the Father's house in heaven.
And this theme of rising to heaven associated with the resurrection or the rapture is a prevalent theme in Irenaeus' eschatology. So in conclusion, first of all, Irenaeus makes a distinction between the Gentile saints of the current age and the Jewish saints of the tribulation, which is the coming age. And this is exactly the same distinction that the dispensationalists make between the church and Israel. Secondly, notice that Irenaeus portrays the tribulation saints as practicing Jews whose temple service is honored and accepted by God. Thirdly, Irenaeus clearly teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. He has the church translated prior to judgment just like Enoch was translated prior to judgment. This translation takes the church to heaven to be with the Father and with the Son. The church is the first to participate in the resurrection and renewal. This means that others are going to participate in the resurrection and renewal later. The church remains in heaven until the second coming. Here again, we've got a, dis a temporal distinction between the rapture and the second coming. And at the second coming, the church steps into the role of judge. Now, these three points combine to make a powerful, robust argument that proves that Irenaeus was pre-tribulational. Fourthly, Irenaeus claims that he received this rapture teaching from aged men who got it from the mouths of the apostles themselves. And this is astounding, folks. Irenaeus was only one link removed from the apostles. And he links his rapture teaching directly to the apostles. This historical argument corroborates the exegetical argument that the pre-tribulation rapture was the teaching of the apostles. And fifthly, this clarifies the eschatology scenario in the early church. The pre-tribulation rapture was the teaching of the earliest fathers because they got it from the apostles, who got it from the living Lord who taught it to them. The post-tribulation rapture is a development of the replacement theology that rose to prominence in the 3rd century and attained near-absolute domination by the end of the 4th. So may the Lord encourage you with this nugget of church history. Eyes wide open, brain engaged, heart on fire. We'll see you next time.